I want to talk to you today about something I am very passionate about. Dial in, collaborate, cooperate, speak up, because we're going to have a good time today. Chapter 12 of the story, as we've been going through this book, which is the Bible. So if you don't have one, you can pick one up. There's some in the back. Just grab one. But I want you to underline and highlight and circle and do whatever you want to do in this book. This is yours. But we're in chapter 12 of 31 chapters. Read a chapter a week. It's kind of simple. And if you missed some, don't worry about it. Just read chapter 13 for next week, because I want you to read before you come into church. But today, some of you are going to be like, well, I wasted my time, Troy. I read the entire chapter 12, and you didn't really get into the entire chapter 12. Good for you, because you read it, but I'm going to kind of give a different angle to this story, to where we're at today. Because in chapter 12, I really appreciate what God did in the Word. It's the story of the life of David, King David, and it's laid out for us, but God didn't just give us the success story of David as a leader, of David as a king, of David as a warrior. He has an amazing resume. His credentials are impeccable, but God actually pulls back the layers of that and shows us David's family life, his home life, and it is a mess. If you were to put his family life into a genre, you might put it into the genre of soap opera meets Jerry Springer, because that's kind of really what it is in the life of his family. You wouldn't put it under fairy tale, that's for sure. And so we're going to look on page 161. If you're looking in your Bible page, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to start. It's going to be on the screen for you as well. Here we go. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, Joab is his like general in his army that he's the king over, out with the king's men, that's like the, the I suppose, the um, officers, and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites. If you remember, I compared them to like the bloods. They destroyed the bloods and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Don't you think he should be leading his army? But he remained back home. And one evening, David got up from his bed Walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Let me start off by saying this. David wasn't where he should have been. And when you're not where you should be in your life, you're probably going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble. Somebody say amen. David wasn't where he should have been. He decides he's going to take the season off. Uh, and, And so one night he couldn't sleep. And so he goes up on his rooftop to get some night air. I am going to tell you that David knows exactly what he is going to see. Because in that culture, in that day, the women all bathed at night. The bathtubs were on top of their houses, and their houses were located on the sides of hills, built into the hill. And so all the men knew you don't go outside on your rooftop at nighttime, because that's when all the ladies of the city are bathing. You be respectful. You don't do that. And so, in other words, he's restless at night, so he gets up and he turns on the TV and he clicks on HBO or Cinemax or, or, or Netflix, and he starts watching something that's okay to watch, but then he kind of sees something that he shouldn't be seeing. He looks around and nobody's watching, so he just kind of hangs there for a little while. And you know what I'm talking about, because that's, that's how the enemy gets us. He knows what he's going to see, and so he's like, well, there's, there's a... There's a beautiful woman there. The Bible tells us what, what he, his, his uh, attendants say to him when he asks the question. What question does he ask? He says, well, who is this? 
And his attendants respond to him and say, that's Bathsheba. But I have a feeling that they say a little bit more than that that might not be recorded in the word. I think because they're looking out for King David, like, like his reputation, like trying to protect him. If you're a good friend, you'd probably say something like this. Well, that's Bathsheba, you know, the wife of Uriah, you know, that Uriah the warrior that's been fighting beside you. You know, you know, Uriah the one that's right now in the battle fighting for you, O King David. Hopefully that would deter him. Oh, yeah, you're right. Let's go back inside. But David doesn't. Instead, it says, David sends for her, and an affair begins, and she becomes pregnant, and David is desperate to cover it up, to try to keep it a secret. So he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, as the story goes, with the logic that says if Uriah comes home for a weekend, he's probably going to sleep with his wife. Now he can convince Uriah that you know, it's, it's, it's Uriah's baby and nobody will ever know it, everything will be just fine, but Uriah is an honorable man. And he comes home, but the rest of the soldiers don't get to come home for the weekend. So he says, I'm not even going to go in my house, let alone sleep with my wife, because the rest of my cohorts in, in the military uh, can't come home, so why should I get to enjoy the, 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 my home as well? And so he sleeps, he sleeps on the front porch, and David's really upset now because he's got to figure out a way to cover this up. He's got to maintain the illusion that his family is okay, that he hasn't done anything wrong. And a lot of us understand that because when it comes to ourselves or to our marriages or to our children, our families, we have this need to make everybody around us think, well, they don't have any problems. But you know what? We all have, we all have problems. There's no perfect families I and mean, we all struggle in one way or another. But David decides he's going to take it to a whole nother level. And he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a sealed document. Basically, he's carrying his own death warrant as he goes back. And he, he gives the, the, the envelope or the scroll or whatever it is, he gives it to, to probably to Joab, who is the general of the army. And it's unrolled and it's read. And David's instructions are pretty clear. Here's what I want you to do. Put Uriah on the front lines where everybody's fighting. And then when they're fighting, pull everybody back except for Uriah. And he does that. And of course, Uriah is killed. David murdered Uriah. And so Bathsheba... Uriah's wife moves into the palace and she becomes David's wife. And I ask myself this question, how did that happen? How how did that happen? You you can't get any more Jerry Springer than this, in my opinion. And then if you keep reading the story, it's absolutely a mess. It's crazy. Amnon, one of David's sons, rapes his half-sister, and, 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 and her name is Tamar, and D- David, David's daughter, Tamar, tells her full brother, Absalom, who is David's son also, what happens, Absalom is mad, seething with rage that his half-brother did this to his sister, and so for two years he plots and he plans, and he has his brother killed He kills Amnon, and then David gets mad, and this precipitates a a war, a civil war in the nation that David is the king over because David's family is such a mess, and David and Absalom go to war against each other, divides the nation. Eventually, Absalom, David's son, is killed, and his family is just in pieces, and you think, how how did that happen? You ever ask that about your, your own life? How did that happen? 
How, how, did it, how did it come to this? How did things fall apart? How did that happen? And I wonder as I read this, what if we go back? What if we're able to go back on the story? Maybe we could see the start of where things begin to fall apart. There is a way of telling stories. You're probably very familiar with this because in our current culture, a lot of movies are done this way. And it's called reverse chronology. Reverse chronology means when you go into a movie, you don't want to miss the first 10 minutes because the first 10 minutes of the film um, is just this action-packed, like, what in the world is going on? It's, it's a crazy picture that you don't understand. And then you'll see the words flash up on the screen six months earlier. And the most of the majority of the rest of the film is the story from six months earlier to the scene that you just saw. And you're thinking, this, this is the climactic part, but you don't have the prelude to it. You don't really know what's going, go, going on. And many of you know what I'm talking about because everything that led up to that point is what caused all of that, that craziness. Um, what if we could go back in the story before this dramatic moment of David and Bathsheba and the affair and the cover-up and the murder and the rape and the, the death of a son and the civil war of a nation, and, and you think, how did that happen? I think that God's word can help us do this. So we're going to use some reverse chronology today, and hopefully we can figure out where this mess began, and we can hopefully figure out where the mess began in our lives, because Maybe you're in the beginning of a mess today, and the mess is going to reach its climactic pivot point three months from now. And if we could fix what's happening today, then we can avoid the mess later on. So turn in the story, if you're in the story, to page 158 or in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 6. And while you're doing that, let me just kind of say, um, I deal with a lot of families, and a lot of us talk to a lot of different families, and what I struggle with is I hear the dramatic conclusion when people come to talk to me. I, I talk to people after the affair is discovered, or I talk to people after the marriage is coming to an end, or I talk to people after their child has rebelled and won't speak to them any, whatever it is. And I'll listen to the story, and I will literally ask the question, how did, how did that happen? And here's what I hear from people. Uh, if I've heard this from you, then bless you, but you're not the only one. Well, I, I don't know, Pastor. I, I, I thought everything was okay, and, and then she left. I thought everything was okay, and, and then he didn't come home. Pastor, I don't know. I thought everything was okay, but now my, my kid just won't speak to me anymore. And so I think we can learn some things if we go back to where everything fell apart in David's life. And so there's this scene in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I can't help but to think that if this scene would have played out a little bit differently, it would have changed the course of David's life and the trajectory of his family. Things have would turn out differently. Second Samuel chapter six, let me tell you, this is where David is newly married to his first wife, and her name was Michael. 
the wife of his youth. And they're, they're in this beginning of this romantic relationship. It was very romantic. Remember when David was 18 years old, he went out to fight Goliath. We talked about that last week. And Goliath was mocking the armies of the Lord. And David's like, I don't think so. And he goes out and he fights Goliath. But what I didn't mention to you last week was King Saul, the king of the nation at the time, had, had issued a decree that whoever fought Goliath was going to get two things. Number one, they would be exempt from taxes for life. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was an option today, I'd probably go fight the beast. Wouldn't you do that? Yes, be exempt from taxes for life. And number two, whoever did this would get his daughter's hand in marriage. Yes, Michael is the daughter of King Saul. So David went out and fought Goliath. I'm not sure if he knew about these things or not. He just felt compelled to fight Goliath because he was coming against God. So David fought Goliath, and sure enough, David was then exempt from taxes, and he was able to marry Saul's daughter named Michael. Now, to get to that point, there's a little bit of a mess within itself, but eventually he receives Princess Michael as his bride. And so there's this kind of romantic beginning between the, the youthful warrior and the princess, the daughter of the king. But by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'm telling you what, things are going pretty good for David. His life is pretty good. He is now the king. Things at the office are going really, really well. The nation of Israel is going really good. I mean, it's prosperous. There's peace in the land. David is conquering the enemies. It's exciting. In fact, at this point, the Ark of the Covenant, remember it's that kind of box that has the presence of God inside it, has now been brought back into the city because it was taken out of the city by the enemies. It entered back into the city. Then there's this great celebration that's taking place. And so David comes back in after this great conquest and he's just kind of celebrating before God. It's a big party. And, and so he takes off, takes off his shirt. He takes off his robe, the Bible says. I think of it a little bit like a, a soccer um, uh, game. You know how they, they score the goal and they run and take off the shirt like, ah! I think it's just that kind of a celebration. I'm not going to take off my shirt, but I think it's that kind of a celebration. And he just kind of dances before God with all his might. I believe he's really worshiping God. But, but Michael, his wife, is peeking through the window. Boy, she doesn't like what she sees. She's getting really ticked off, really upset, because she's watching her husband take off his shirt and dancing before the Lord. I believe she's embarrassed by his behavior, especially his behavior in front of these other women that are around, the servant ladies that are around. Sidebar, wives, that's what husbands do is we embarrass you. It's just part of the job description, right? It, it happens. But she resented him for it. And so on page 158, if you'll allow me, check it out what it says on the first part of chapter 6, verse 20, when David returned home, get this, to bless his household. I want to stop there for a second. David comes home to bless his household. In other words, David's coming home in a really good mood. Like, he's really happy. He's had a great day in the office. He's really, really jazzed. And his wife comes out to meet him. And right out of the gate, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. 
It's just, can you feel the, the tension in the air? He's probably shell-shocked. David comes home from this great day of celebration, a great day in the office. The first thing she does is lay into him sarcastically. And so Michael attacks David, and David immediately gets defensive. Oh, God, listen, listen to this. David said to Michael, boy, I wish he would have taken a breath, but David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me or rather than your father. Quickly, let me just tell you this. Um, the, um, a poor strategy to resolving marital conflict would be attacking your father-in-law. I'm just going to throw that one out there, right? Because that's exactly what he does. Um, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. Woman, he didn't really say woman, but I mean, I impl it's implied. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke up, I will be held in honor. Oh, and it happens. Ding, 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 ding. And it's a full-on fight. And you're like, well, they got over it. No, they didn't. In fact, the Bible says, this is how the story ends for Michael. You'll read nothing about her in the rest of the Bible, except that it says that she had no children until her death. Let me tell you what that actually means. That means they never slept together, not one more time the rest of their marriage until she died. That was a huge conflict. And I think to myself, you know, how did that happen? The whole marriage is now ruined. Why would the Bible even give us this play-by-play -play of this dialogue? Why would God give us this information? Here's, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. If things would have gone differently in this moment, maybe it would have changed a lot of other moments in the story. Hmm. What, what would have happened in the story that I just outlined if David would have invited Michael into the celebration. Hey, baby, 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 I'm home. Listen, you got to come out. We, we got to dance because the Ark of the Covenant is back. What if he invited his wife to be a part of the celebration? What if Michael would have been more encouraging to her husband? Baby, you did it. I'm so proud of you. What if David would have listened to his wife when she was upset? Tried to kind of see it through her eyes. Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. I just got overwhelmed. And let me put my shirt back on again. What if, what if Michael would not have been so insecure, so defensive? What if they wouldn't have been sarcastic? What if there would have been no personal assaults or personal attacks? What if someone would have said, I'm sorry? What if someone would have said, will you forgive me? What if David would have fought for the wife of his youth with as much passion and intensity as he fought the, the giant Goliath? Oh, there's a lot of what ifs in this story. How would things have changed for the rest of the story? And here's what I'm convinced of, guys. I'm convinced that the story of our marriages and our families is written in the seemingly insignificant moments of day-to-day -day life. It's called the accumulative effect. There are moments, even right now, that are leading up to things, to big things. It's like this. Many years ago, when I was eight-ish, my grandfather, who lived in Humboldt, Iowa, was a twister, a tornado, and it, and it took down an oak tree, a big oak tree, and it landed on my grandfather's, I called it a garage, he called it a shed, it was giant, and it landed on, just destroyed the building. 
So we went as a family, all the uncles did, and we all traveled, and we went up there for the weekend. My dad took the ax and the saw, and we took, you know, these chainsaws, and all the men were working together to help Grandpa clean up the, the mess. And I, as I've tried to help as an eight-year-old boy, probably getting more in the way than anything else, but during the conversation, I heard one of my uncles, I believe, say that it wasn't the storm that blew over the tree and caused the damage. He said the tree had been rotting from the inside for years. It was just, it was the storm that just finally pushed it over the edge. And I think that's how our marriages and our families work. When we, when we encounter a storm, we point at that one moment in our lives and we say, that was it. When you know, the, the wind blew it down. But the truth is there was a lot of things that led up to that before the tree fell. In marriage, Keelan and I have been married a long time like some of you. And when we got married, we, we brought into our marriage what I'm gonna call a burden block. Okay, so we, we brought into, I brought into our marriage burdens, and so did Keely. You brought burdens into your marriage or will into your relationships. Things like, maybe they were things that attracted you to each other to begin with. Maybe you were, uh, maybe you brought an addiction that wouldn't attract anybody, but maybe you're thinking, well, I can help him or I can help her overcome this. Uh, maybe, maybe you, I don't know, brought into this, um, uh, I don't know what that says. Uh, my letter fell. Sagging. I'm not sure what would it be. Nagging. Uh, it'd be terrible if sagging was on there. That's horrible, right? So maybe you brought nagging into this, and you thought, well, she's so cute when she gets high strung. Oh, yeah, see if it's cute in about six months, right? Or, or maybe, oh, you worry a lot. I like how much he cares about me. He just worries about me all the time. Maybe he's the strong, silent type. I guarantee you in a year, you're going to be like, why doesn't he talk to me? You bring burdens into your, into, maybe it's a hot temper or you're a little passive or workaholic and we bring these burdens in and because we love each other, because we care about our spouse, we're willing to carry, till death do us part, I'm willing to carry the burdens that you're bringing into this marriage. And it's not a bad thing to carry each other's burdens, but we'll carry those burdens. But the longer I hold the block, the more tired I become. And the burdens seem to get heavier and heavier all the time. And it's at some point that your mental determination, your physical determination to carry the burden block becomes overwhelmed by physical exhaustion. You do your very best to hold onto the burden block as long as you can, but at some point it becomes too heavy and it just, it's a mess. It's a mess. And we point to that moment when I drop the block and we say, that was it. And I tell you, that's a lie. That wasn't it. It's okay to carry burdens for each other. We should. But we should take those burdens to the cross of Jesus Christ and leave them with Jesus because his burden is, is light. His, his yoke is light. His burden is it's all easy. It's, it's intended for him to carry it and not for us. And when everything falls apart, we call that a crisis. And we point to that time and that place. They say, that's how, that's how it happened. Troy dropped it. That, that's, 
That's what caused everything to fall apart, but that's, that's not the moment. The burden block had been carried for a long time. And we ask our families to carry these burden blocks. And we think, they're fine. My wife, she can handle the burden block of me constantly being out of town, me constantly being late, me constantly being distracted by my cell phone or my emails. She can handle the burden block of me being disconnected from the family after all I'm providing. My, my husband, he, he can handle the burden block. He can carry it, the burden block of my critical spirit and my negative attitude and my anger, my wounds that I haven't dealt with over my past hurts. Oh, he, he, he's got this. He's gonna be fine. My children, my kids, they can carry the burden block of us yelling at each other and not really living out our faith, being different at church than we are at home, not training them up in the way they should go and prioritizing Jesus and the word of God. They can, they're resilient. They'll be fine. And they are fine for a while. But at some point, their mental determination is overcome by their physical exhaustion and the burden block gets dropped. And, and here's the truth. We stop at that very moment and we need to look at the burden blocks that we've asked our family members to carry. Because I'm just gonna tell you, I think they're getting tired. I think our spouses and our parents and our kids, our, our coworkers, our employees, I think they're getting tired. And at some point, the burden block, it's gonna fall and it's going to shatter and nobody wants that. So, so give me some hope, Troy. How, how do we avoid that? What do we do? I'm gonna give you like four things in four minutes. So jot it down very quickly. I believe this will help you. Four lessons from David that I picked up this week. Number one, it's gotta be four minutes, it's gotta be quick. When there's conflict in marriage or family, Identify what the issue really is. It's hard in the minute. Now, let's leave that up there for a second, please. It's hard in the moment, but take time to find out what the issue really is because Michael just kind of lays into David as soon as he comes home. Oh, my, how the king has distinguished himself today. Just taking off your clothes and running around trying to all sleep, girl. And she's really upset at David. And David is immediately defensive. But what would have happened, and I'm gonna put this on the guy first. What would have happened if David would have really listened to his wife? Like, not listen to the way she's making fun or how she's being sarcastic or triggering, but she's triggered. What would have happened if maybe he would have thought, well, the reason why she's upset is because maybe she wanted to be invited. I don't know. Maybe she wanted to be celebrating with me. Maybe she felt this way because she's feeling insecure and kind of dancing around and there's other ladies around her. Maybe she just needed to be reaffirmed. If David could have remained calm enough, maybe that would have changed everything. Is the real issue that your husband is coming home late or is it that you just don't know if he's really gonna come home? I mean, that's, that's the real issue. What's the real issue? Is it that he's, he's home, but he's not really present? And I'm picking on the guys, but there's, there's room for the ladies. Number two, find a good time and a good place for difficult conversations. Don't be a jack wagon. Can I just say that out loud? Don't do that. Don't act like a fool like, like, like Michael did. What does she do? David was in front of all of the people he's leading. He's celebrating on behalf of God. And she lays into him right there. That was not the time and that was not the place. If she needed to express some things to him, 
She should have jotted it down or she should have just, just put it in a box and thought, I'm gonna talk to him tonight after dinner and we'll kind of work through this thing together. That's, that's love. You, love is not reactive. David, out of maturity, likewise could have done the same thing. Hey, baby, let's not talk about this right now. Right now, this is time to celebrate before the Lord. Let's take some time later. We're gonna sit down. I promise you, we have my undivided attention. I will hear you, and, and I'll be present for you. But right now, this is the time to celebrate on behalf of God. David could have done that as well. So, so find a good time and place. Number three, we'll stick to the issue. Oh, this is where it goes wrong, in my opinion, in so many relationships. What does David do? She comes out and she's ticked off. Immediately, he expands the issue, doesn't he? Oh, yeah? Well, yeah. I'm going to bring your daddy into this. If there's any way you're going to trigger your wife is by bringing her daddy into this thing, right? Don't, don't do that. And that's exactly what happens. So she gets on him, and immediately he makes it about his in-laws, and we tend to do that. And it gets bigger, and it gets broader. And my wife and I say this all the time. All of a, all of a sudden, we're not fighting about the issue. We're fighting the fight about the fight about the fight about the fight. And it's got layers now, and it's going to take time to work through all of that because you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Number four, try, if at all possible, to start with a positive. Just a thought I had as I'm writing this thing. I'm thinking, what would have happened if Michael, peering through the window, can't believe he took off his shirt. What a shot you dancing around in front of him. What if she would have gone out and thought, I've got to talk to my husband, but hey, David, pretty sweet dance moves. And you got some sexy legs. I just got to tell you that right now. What if she would have started with something positive? I'm not talking about lying. Surely she can, she's probably happy to see her husband, but she's feeling a little insecure. So what if she would have started with something a little bit positive? For David, this was a great day of celebration. She should have recognized this. He wants his wife to be impressed with him. That's what every guy wants. But instead, she's sarcastic and critical, takes the wind out of his sails. There's no room for that in a healthy relationship. She wasn't the only one who wasn't positive. What would have happened if David would have really listened to what his wife's concerns were and said, oh my goodness, honey, I can't believe I was acting like such a fool. I'm so sorry if I embarrassed you, if I caused you any pain. That is, was never my intention. I, I beg your pardon. I ask for your forgiveness. I'm going to put my shirt back on and start acting a little bit, a little bit more like your husband, and maybe I'll save the shirtlessness for later on. There's nothing wrong with that in marriage but I can see where it went awry. The Bible tells the men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Guys, here we go. By reconciling himself to her. Jesus is the reconciler who goes to. He is the one who pursues after. And so I happen to believe that it's up to the men. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel balanced, but it's up to the men and the husbands to be the initiator of reconciliation in the relationship to be the one to say, I'm sorry. It's my hope and my prayer as I bring this thing to a close that you address these burden blocks in your relationships and in your marriages. You really take time to think, man, what am I, what burden did I transfer to this person in my life that I desperately and deeply care about? But, but, in life, conflict happens. Problems come up. Not all of them can be avoided. 
because we're still human. So I'm not asking you to be perfect. Life happens. If you keep reading David's story, David realizes I can't rewind. How many would love to rewind your life to a certain chapter and do that over again, right? David can't rewind. He can't go back. He can't do things over. But God still uses the whole mess for David's good and God's glory. In fact, when we finally are going to get to the first chapter of the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, where Jesus, God's son, is finally introduced, here's what it says. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Now, David wasn't really his dad. David was far removed, many generations removed from Jesus. So it's like his great, 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 great grandfather. But he's the son, referred to as the son of a guy who has a messed up family. Like a, like a total in ruins family. And I think to myself, if God can do that, God can do anything. Jesus is the son of David. David's family was a mess. Everything had fallen apart. But look at what God did. I pray that for you and for your family. We work on the burden blocks, but trust in the Lord. Let me pray for you. So God, we ask that you would do for us what you did for David. I ask that you would take the broken pieces of our families. And God, that you would put them to, together for your glory. God, would you redeem what we have made a mess out of in our lives? And would you redeem that for your good in Jesus' name?